Good morning to all of you. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Just a, yeah, just a privilege to be here. We're, we've been enjoying the the crisp, uh, fresh mornings you guys have out here um, in the Pacific Northwest. It tends to get a little sweltering in, in Barcelona in the summer. So it's, um, but you know, weather aside, it's just great to be among friends. And and Mike and I, like uh, Mike was saying, we go back. Um, yeah, a good few years now, and we've kept in contact, and we both um, have children now, so it's wonderful just to come back and be renewed and refreshed by old friends and be um, renewed and refreshed by by you guys, by, by the believers um, here in the States. So, uh, yeah, just to give you guys a, a quick overview of what we're doing in Barcelona, um, I should mention... I was having a, I'm, I'm, I, I tend to do this, but I was talking to somebody the other day and, and they were saying, oh, Barcelona. And, and I said, no, it's, it's actually Barcelona. So I will, I will give you guys the, the inside, uh, information, insider information that the actual pronunciation is Barcelona. So don't let any Americans tell you otherwise. Um, it's a longer discussion, but if you're interested in languages, we can talk about that afterwards. But to what we are doing, um, in Barcelona, uh, we, have been there. I've been there for about eight years. I married my wife uh, five years ago. She's from Athens, Greece. She was part of a new church there um, in in Athens. Um, came to faith later while she was in university later in life. And um, for those of you not familiar, um, many many Americans tend to think of Spain in general and Barcelona as a very Catholic place. Um, like most of Western Europe, it's become increasingly secular. Um, I probably went many, I, I, yeah, I, I went many years before I met a single practicing Catholic in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, really the only people that are still practicing Catholics, and it's even a minority among um older people, let's say, in the population, but there are very, very few people in the city um, that would consider themselves Christians uh, at, at this stage. So we're planning a, a church right in the heart of the city in a neighborhood called Gracia, which means grace, very auspicious name. Uh, we started services there this past October. Um, we are going to be doing services, or we've been alternating between Spanish and Catalan. So Catalan is the other um, language. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with Catalan independence, but there's a big independence movement from Spain and in Catalonia, the region of Spain that we're in. And uh, our vision at the church is um, really to uh, bring the church, uh, and by that I mean the, the community um, of, of saints, uh, the redeemed outside the walls of the church, and interact and be a part of the community. I was telling Mike that I really love our neighborhood because it's 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 a really unique place in the sense that it's in the middle of this large cosmopolitan, huge city, but there's still a very strong neighborhood, local identity. There's a lot of traditions and festivals, and, and local people really take pride in being from this neighborhood. There are a lot of people that have lived their whole entire lives um, in this neighborhood. They're still living in the houses they were born in. Um, and we, we want to be a part of that local um, social fabric in that community and give people a chance to experience the love of Christ um, and the uh, forgiveness of Christ and the community of Christ by by going to them. So that's really the vision of the church is to allow people to taste and see the goodness of God um, through the community 
um, and to obviously, uh, when the opportunity presents itself, to, to, to tell people the good news about Christ. So just to give you guys two little stories, um, our neighbors, we had to renovate our space. So in Spain, when you renovate a space, that's generally a guaranteed, surefire way, way of setting people against you because everybody is living on top of each other. And so the extra noise uh, usually sets people on edge. But uh, by God's grace, we are still friends with all of our neighbors. We're surrounded on three sides, you know, ceiling two sides by people. That's kind of how Barcelona is. We're still friends um, with all the neighbors. And actually, um, one of the neighbors uh, has, they probably, I, I guess they've been to a Catholic church a handful of times in their lives, but they're not practicing Catholics. Um, they've come over uh, a few months ago. Uh, this couple brought their grandma, Rosé, um, into the building and you know, um, she's come back. This this younger couple hasn't come back. She's brought a friend uh, to the church, and uh, he's he's a big musician. So I, I always hear him playing his guitar through the walls, even though we've got soundproofing. That's you know that's how it is, close quarters. Um, but he's invited me to concerts they've done, and um, invited me out to talk to his mom as well. So that's really what we envision—a place where people from the community um, can come in. Um, you know, come to a service, meet with the community or members of the community, have a beer in the square. Spain's all about doing life outside and just um, interact with the community and, and get a chance to experience God's love um, in a way that's very different than what they've experienced um, in the Roman Catholic Church. I, I didn't really get into the history of Spain, but um, one of the reasons Spain is so secular is because for centuries, um, the the church and the state were were in sort of an unholy alliance. So that was true in the Spanish Inquisition when um, you know Protestants and and heretics, people who were branded heretics, were persecuted um, and killed. And that was also true um, up into very recent history, where the dictator Francisco Franco, who was in power from 39 to 1939 to 1975 was also directly backed by the Catholic state. So a lot of people look at Christianity, and the only version of Christianity they've ever seen is the Catholic Church, and they think, this is just a big scam. This is a way uh, to take people's money. This is a way to control the population. Um, I don't want anything to do with <laughs> uh, Christianity or organized religion. So, um, But again, I think having said that, there is still a ton of opportunity for the gospel and a ton of opportunity um, to to show forth Christ's love and to just see people experience or have people experience something different than a highly ritualized institutional atmosphere. So, if you guys have any more questions, I'd love to um, yeah talk um, some more about what we're doing and um, yeah, I just want to encourage you, uh, you guys, that even in a place like Barcelona, where it seems ostensibly very difficult for people to come to faith, uh, we've recently had a guy just, it was amazing because it was very clear to me that it had nothing to do with me, has asked to be baptized, and I've been there for many years, and um, so that was really encouraging, and, and, and God is at work even in places where it feels like all of the cultural forces um, are aligned against uh, Christ and his gospel. So, um, thank you so much for having me here. With that said, we're going to move to our text for today. Today we're going to be in the Old Testament. So I'd invite you to turn with me to 2 Kings uh, chapter 21, 1 through 18. 
So this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practice practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. In the carved image of Asherah that he made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done when the, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord." Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Amon his son reigned in his place. So we're going to turn now to the uh, parallel account, which is in Second Chronicles chapter 32, 33 through 33, 20. So, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he began, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, And Jerusalem shall my, shall, uh, shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. 
and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze, And brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of uh, Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgivings, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites in which he built high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself, behold, so they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Amon his son reigned in his place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is a light shining for us in a very dark place. We pray that you would send your spirit this morning, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, um, open our hearts to receive your message, Lord. Let our in- incredulity and our lack of faith and our unbelief fall away. Um, renew our faith, renew our zeal. Um, show us, Lord, the places where we are in a need of, of, of deep change, Heavenly Father, and lead us again uh, to your side and to your grace and to your presence, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of my um, absolute, hold on one second, I'm going to flip back, so I'm back, uh, I'm, we're mainly going to be dealing with kings, so before um, before I start, I would invite you to go back to kings, because that's when we're going to, well, we're going to be dealing with kings and chronicles, but I'm going to, I'm going to go back to kings as well. Um, but um, yeah, so like I, like, like I was saying, I've been in Europe for eight years, I grew up in Europe, I've spent a lot of my life in Europe. Um, and probably one of my absolute favorite places um, in all of Europe is this little town in France, um, right nestled in the Alps, called Chamonix. And I remember when I first uh, drove 
to Chamonix in 2015. It was right before I started my time in Spain. Um, and driving into the valley, there's this moment when you round the corner and, um, you know, these wild, jagged, turquoise, um, massive glaciers come into view and they're cascading down uh, the mountains. It's, it, it gives you these you know, these memories of these icy eons, you know, I've heard of the little ice age in Europe when everything was far colder because you know, the glaciers have receded, but they're still incredibly close to this very low valley. And then you see this other part of the mountain, the, the, the top of the mountain comes into view, which is called the Dome de Guter, which is this huge white dome. If you've seen Rainier, um, maybe not exactly on this scale, but it is a massive white dome at the summit of Mont Blanc. And it, and it always looks like it's been freshly snowed upon. It doesn't matter if you're looking at it in the spring, the summer, uh, the fall, the winter. It's always f- white, fresh, um, untouched. It's always pristine, has this virgin quality about it. And I remember driving in, I was just absolutely um, captivated by this majestic sight. It, bogg- it boggled my mind that this type of place could exist in the Alps, because I, I, like I said, I grew up in the Netherlands. Um, I traveled a fair bit around Europe. I'd been to the Alps before, but I couldn't imagine like a place like that, like Chamonix, existed in the middle of the Alps because it has this quality about it that's totally unlike what I would have expected given the other mountains in the area that I had seen, other places like Switzerland and Austria and in Italy. I was totally unprepared. Uh, for that site that greeted me there. Um, and I think that there's this interesting parallel in terms of how we perceive reality when we look out at the people around us. You know, we, we, we think we know more or less uh, what to expect for, from people. Uh, maybe it's a problem that gets, uh, it's a little more pronounced as you grow older, where, you, you know, you kind of can predict or you think you can predict how people respond and react to certain things. We extrapolate from our past experience. Um, but the issue is that our experience is so limited. We're these fragile, mortal beings. And our vision is nothing like God's vision of people, God's vision of the panorama of people's hearts. Because only God knows what lies around the next corner. Only he knows what the hidden, inaccessible regions and recesses of their hearts contain. Um, There might even be thoughts, desires, longings that are buried so deeply in us, buried so deeply in other people that they exist at a a totally unconscious level. Uh, There are things we couldn't even articulate about ourselves. Um, We couldn't articulate um, certain hurts or certain longing or, or certain joys where our experience and our past and our upbringing all merge together. And there are places where God can touch us and God can touch other people that we could be wholly unaware of until that very moment where God sends his spirit, he breaks through our darkness and our unbelief, and he reveals the deep truths of who we are and who he is. And so this morning, as we look at this uh, narrative and this story of Manasseh, I want us to consider what would it look like to have a sanctified, God-inspired imagination when it comes to people? 
an imagination that's colored and captivated with the limitless possibilities of God to meet people in totally unexpected, inexplicable ways. Um, how would you approach differently uh, people differently if you really believe that God can reach anyone at any moment, that God can reach down his hand and rescue people mired in the deepest, darkest valleys of self-loathing and self-hate and in these endless deserts of hopelessness? I was just mentioning the work we're doing um, in Barcelona, Barcelona, and logically, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for people to believe in Christianity. Like I said earlier, given uh, people's experience, maybe with institutional religion, um, given the history of the country um, and many of the abuses, and like I said, the abuse of power and the combination between church and state, um, and then all of the uh, philosophical currents that make it very difficult uh, for people to believe in God's existence and make it, make it difficult for people to believe that there's something outside of the material of what we can taste and see. All of this makes it a very logical conclusion uh, to not believe in God and to believe that Christianity is something of a scam. Um, so how are people going to come to faith in this type of society where Christianity and belief and faith is totally implausible because nobody believes. Um, how are we going to see Spanish and Catalan people come to faith when everything is pointing them in a different direction? And maybe you're in a, a, a similar situation. You have people in your life, you have coworkers, you have family members, and, and you look around you and you think, uh, these these people, they're, they're so antagonistic towards Christianity, um, or they have philosophies or, or, or thought patterns that make it very difficult for them to consider other possibilities and other truths. And, and you just think to yourself, you know, these people, um, they're, they're too far gone. Um, they, they have gone too far down another path for the Lord to reach them. So what I want us to see this morning is that the story of Manasseh is a powerful antidote for our logic-bound, incredulous minds when it comes to God's working. So what we're going to do now is we're going to immerse ourselves into the story. We're going to get stuck into the narrative. And the first thing uh, that, when I read this, that was shocking to me is that Manasseh is the son of one of the most famous kings of Judah. He's the son of King Hezekiah. Um, and if you've ever read uh, the, the, the long histories, you know, in Chronicles and Kings of the Jewish and Israelite kings, uh, Hezekiah would have stuck out to you like a sore thumb. Because if Manasseh found new ways of doing evil, Hezekiah was absolutely the opposite. He was creative and inventive and doing good and restoring purity and right worship to the land. Uh, in 2 Kings 18.3, the narrator says that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. Now, this is a, a sort of, if you're you know paying attention when you read this and you're not in your, your Bible um, you know, plan where you're sort of glazing over um, and, you're, and you're struggling to, to, to notice the details, but King David was not Hezekiah's father. Um, Hezekiah was the son of an exceedingly evil king of Judah called King Ahaz. And yet the narrator calls David his father. So clearly the, the narrator, the writer, uh, sees Hezekiah as the spiritual offspring, the spiritual heir 
of David, a man whom the Bible describes uh, as a man uh, uh, after God's own heart. So Hezekiah was a man with a deep-seated love for the Lord, a man with a deep-seated love for the true, the beautiful, and the good. And then here comes his son, uh, Manasseh. And granted, he's only 12 years old when he when he starts reigning, but he would have had, have had time to observe his father um, and the way he governed the kingdom. We don't know what the personal relationship between Manasseh and Hezekiah was. The text doesn't really give us any details there. But Manasseh, like I said, would have had time to observe how his father ruled. He would have been groomed from birth uh, to rule the kingdom, as was the, the custom in antiquity. And what's more, when he took over the kingdom, he would have inherited all of the, the counselors and the people in important positions in the country that were doing the will of Hezekiah. So he, he inherited a lot of um, benefits, and yet he turns his back on all of this. Uh, he develops this, this resume uh, of sins, um, and so here are some of the of the sordid details that come out in both of these narratives about his reign. Uh, both narratives talk about how he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. So he's reinstituting worship of all these other pagan gods. Um, he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab had done. Uh, verse 7 um, the narr- both narratives really place a lot of emphasis on the fact that he placed this carved image of another god, of a foreign god, in the temple, the place where God had put his name, the place that God had endowed with his glory and presence. Um, both narratives talk about the fact that he built altars for all the hosts of heaven. So he was a he was a bona fide collector of foreign gods. Any foreign god that he could find, he wanted to bring into the temple. Um, into the two courts of the house of the Lord. And the two courts were, would have been the outer court, which would have been where the normal Israelites could go in the temple. And then you, you had the inner court where only the Levites, only the priests uh, were allowed to go in. So putting these pieces together, um, Manasseh utterly defiled the holiest place in Jewish culture, the temple where God's glory and presence dwelled. And remember that this idea of God's glory and presence wasn't some sort of theoretical idea for the Israelites. Um, God's glory and presence descended physically on the temple when Solomon dedicated it. Um, that's something you can uh, ring about, uh, read about in Kings as well. So this was known as the Shekinah glory of God, the glory of God that dwelled in the temple. So this very place where the literal presence of the Lord existed, he's defiling with all of these idols. He's totally corrupting and perverting the spirituality of the entire nation, not just the people, but perverting and corrupting the practice also of all the priests and the spiritual leaders that led the people. Um, Verse 6 of both Kings and Chronicles um, mention another sort of uh, item in 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 his horrible resume that's, that's a stuck, an air stuck in your chest sort of revelation. It says in verse six of Kings that he burned his son as an offering. Uh, verse six of Chronicles says that he sacrificed his children 
in the fire, indicating he murdered multiple children, so probably a son and maybe a daughter or, or several daughters. We don't know exactly. So this um, abominable practice of child sacrifice, um, which was appears, you know, the archaeologist tells us appears widespread among the uh, the Canaanite nations before the Israelites came up from Egypt and drove those other nations out. Um, and we know in the Bible that. That, that, that this practice specifically is mentioned in several places of child sacrifice is one of the primary reasons that God judged those nations and sent the Israelites to drive them out. Um, so moving on from that, both narratives highlight Manasseh was uh, deep into all manner of sorcery, divination, omens, mediums. And the point here is that he was looking for special knowledge. He was looking for this access into the spiritual realm in forbidden places, anywhere and everywhere except through God and his prophets. And then finally, the king's narrative concludes by citing the fact that Manasseh shed much innocent blood. Again, we don't know exactly what these verses are getting at. Uh, Was this a systematic miscarrying of justice? Uh, was it a destruction of political and personal enemies, along with prophets that that had the the, the guts to speak up, uh, speak out against him? The text doesn't elaborate, but the point is that Manasseh was essentially a serial killer. Um, he was either murdering innocent people directly, or he had his servants murder people, or he had um, his military, you know, members of his armed forces murder people. Um, but he was a twisted and violent character. He was a man that was seemingly um, not satisfied with perpetrating the evil of other unrighteous kings. He had to go beyond that. He had to commit new abominations. Um, The man burned his own son alive as a sacrifice to a foreign god. And surely, you know, when the king is behaving like this, surely there were other Israelites that did the same thing. You know, it's, it's not hard to imagine. And it's important to highlight that Manasseh was not operating out of ignorance. Um, Ahaz was not the father of, uh, of uh, Manasseh. His father was Hezekiah, and he went out of his way to corrupt um, whatever was true, whatever was good in terms of leading people closer to God that his father had set up. You know, there are, there are other places in the Bible, um, in the Gospels, where it talks about people and, and cities that acted out of ignorance. This was not the case with Manasseh. This was flagrant sin, a flagrant, a flagrant uh, perversion and upending of everything good in the nation. So what happens? Um, God is not going to let all of this evil go unaddressed. Uh, the text talks about God being provoked uh, to anger. Um, God is not just going to let this situation slide. And consistent with the pattern all across the Old Testament, what does God do? He sends his servants, his messengers, the prophets. Sort of a, a warning shot, you know. Uh, you, 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 you sound off the gun so that people start paying attention. Um, there's danger here. Um, so God sends his prophets to warn the people and Manasseh that there's going to be a reckoning, that this cannot go on. Um, in Kings, we hear this curious expression, that this disaster is about to come upon Judah uh, for their sins, it would make the ears of everyone who heard about it tingle. 
Uh, this is not something we say in English. It's going to make my ears tingle. This is a, uh, a Hebrew idiom, you know, a way that they had of expressing this idea that the news would be so horrific, so astounding, so shocking, that it literally pains your ears. You, you, it, it's hurting your ears to hear about this destruction that's going to come uh, upon um, Judah. Moreover, it says, uh, say the prophets, God was going to stretch out his plumb line as in hold up the Jewish people and their rulers against his divine standard, against his divine measuring stick. And the implication is they're going to be found most wanting, extremely wanting. Um, And then there's this final prophecy that God would wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Um, The meaning here is that he is going to turn everything upside down, it's going to bring complete disorder. He's going to cleanse Jerusalem of all of its sinful inhabitants. And we know that ultimately uh, these prophecies were fulfilled in the exile of the Jewish people to Babylon. Uh, this happens several kings later under King Zedekiah. But even in, in Manasseh's lifetime, God gives a, a foretaste of this judgment in the person of Manasseh himself. Manasseh uh, is taken captive, taken prisoner prisoner by the Assyrians, and he's dragged off to Babylon. Um, some of your translations might talk about them putting a like a ring in his nose, uh, shackles on his hands. So he's basically, you know, I imagine the mar- the, the army marching back to um, to, to Babylon into Assyria. And uh, he's 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 basically the he's the spoil of war. He's the circus monkey. Um, he's utterly humiliated. Um, he's like an animal uh, at this at this point. And so now that Manasseh um, has hit rock bottom, this incredible thing happens. It's it's to me the most shocking verse. It's it's more shocking than the child sacrifices. It's more shocking than all of all of the evil that Manasseh did, the most shocking verse in this whole narrative um, is in the Chronicles account. So you could go back to there if you would like. In the Chronicles account, in verse 13, it says that Manasseh... um, Sorry, I'm going to start at verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And then this is where we really need to pay attention. Verse 13, he prayed to him. Now, that's not the most shocking. This is the shocking thing. God was moved by his entreaty, and God heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So Manasseh was a changed man after this experience. Text says he knew that the Lord was God. In his heart of hearts, there was a radical, profound conversion, changing of allegiance, changing of alliance. Um, God saves Manasseh. But the question to me is, again, like I said, to me, this is the most shocking part how could God hear the prayer of such a wicked man? 
He's committed all of these abominations. He's sacrificed his children. He's murdered innocent people in his kingdom. There was a lot of blood on his hands. Why would God hear the prayers of Manasseh? Uh, the first clue is in verse 12, where it talks about Manasseh humbling himself uh, greatly. What, what I see here with um, Manasseh reminds me so much of what we see uh, in Psalm 51, where it says that a broken and contrite heart the Lord will not despise. So Manasseh is at a point where he finally admits all of the evil he's done in his, his life. He admits that the path he had chosen had only caused pain and destruction. Um, and I imagine him feeling great sorrow, shame, sadness, uh, remorse for all that he had done, but he didn't just, he wasn't just sad, he wasn't just sorrowful because he's now in this horrible situation in exile, away from his kingdom, away from his people. He's the laughing stock of these Assyrians. No, he's having this deep sorrow because he pained and saddened and betrayed and utterly turned his back upon the God of his fathers, upon the God, uh, upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's, he's ready to turn his back on his old way of life and seek a new beginning with, uh, with God. This is what we refer to as repentance. Um, Manasseh repented. But what's the issue? The, 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 his repentance doesn't change the consequences of all of the um, heinous acts that he's committed throughout his lifetime. There's still this wake of destruction um, why would the Lord hear and answer his prayer? And at this point in history, obviously Christ had not yet come, but I believe, um, and it's clear to me, that Manasseh understands at his lowest moment, it's like a beacon of light. He understands the grace and the mercy of God, and he throws himself upon God's grace and mercy. And we know that that grace and mercy of God to hear, to not totally block out that disgusting noise from that disgusting person is only because several hundred years later, God would send his son. Christ toiled up the hill of Calvary. Christ hung on the cross in order to extend his forgiveness and favor to people like Manasseh. And because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, God hears the desperate prayers of, of horrible sinners, wicked people like Manasseh. Because of the work of Christ, God restores wretched people, disgusting people like Manasseh. The Lord doesn't limit his mercy and grace. And because of Christ, he stands ready and willing to forgive and to pardon and to shower his goodness and mercy and favor upon people that we would look at and we would say, they're just too far gone. They've traveled too far down this path of, of sin and addiction and, um, and, and, and violence. 
They've led other people astray. They've committed undeniable evil. They've spread the malaise of their immorality to other people. Manasseh wasn't just an isolated person that committed sins. His sin infected an entire nation. In fact, as I was reading this, it reminds me of a figure like Hitler. He's a horrible figure that corrupts an entire nation. Um, so I want you to spend a few moments thinking about which of your family members, which of your friends, um, which of your coworkers, which of your neighbors you consider too far gone. Um, who do you, maybe unconsciously, um, maybe at an unconscious level, but who do you consider beyond the pale, beyond the reach of the goodness of God? Who's that unreachable person in your mind? Because if the Lord pierced through the deep, deep darkness of Manasseh, if the Lord sent his spirit and completely transformed this man, I love that verse, and then he knew that the Lord was God, he can also radically touch and change the, the heart of that person that in your finite human mind has no chance. What's the issue here? The issue is that our human calculus, our human logic can so easily try to limit the saving power of God. It's not for us to decide who's beyond the pale, who's beyond the reach of God's mercy. So how much of your um, efforts and your willingness and your enthusiasm to share the love of Christ are governed by your own logic and your own conclusions about whether someone is near or far from the kingdom of God? Uh, do you un, are you unconsciously maybe even sorting people into different groups, people that are good candidates for God's mercy and God's grace, and people that are bad candidates for God's mercy and grace? Because the truth of the matter is that this sort of attitude, uh, which I think we all fall victim to, it just really reveals a faulty understanding of our own conversion and our own journey to Christ. It's a sort of um, insidious spiritual pride that, that, that recasts the narrative such that, you know, we were, we were actually not that far from God before he pierced through our darkness. Um, it's a subtle denial of the truths of Romans 3.11 that none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Um, this attitude unearths a sort of revisionist history that we were okay people. Maybe we were a little bit misguided, um, but we weren't too bad at the end of the day. Um, but the scriptures speak very different, differently about our condition uh, before God found us. According to Isaiah, before we knew God, we walked in darkness and dwelled in a land of deep darkness. According to Matthew 4.16, we dwelled in darkness, we lived in darkness, and we lived in the region of shadow and death. According to Acts 26, 18, before we knew God, we faced darkness, we were oriented towards darkness, and we were under the power of Satan. So taken together, these scriptures speak to the idea that before we knew Christ, we were victims of darkness, 
And we were doers of darkness. We were partakers of darkness, but we were also perpetrators of darkness and evil. And imagine if, if, if the Lord had looked at you in your state and your condition and decided, you know what? That one's just, he, he's too far gone. You've done too much evil. You don't qualify. You've traveled too far down this path. You're not a good candidate for my mercy and my grace. And yet, very subtly at times, we're performing that sort of calculus, that sort of calculation in our minds. We are, maybe with our attitude, with our approach, with intangible things, or maybe in a very real way, we're denying others the opportunity to hear and respond to Christ's marvelous gospel. So we need our minds uh, reprogrammed. This story is here to reprogram our minds. We need God um, to guide us when we speak of his great gospel, when we speak to other people about his mercy and grace. We need a sensitivity to his spirit. We need to recognize that we are utterly reliant upon his intervention to witness the miracle of conversion in people around us. Yeah, God can use apologetics. He can use deep discussions. He can use conversations. Um, he can use things like the Alpha Course, Christianity Explored. Um, it's often a process for people to turn towards God and repent. But we have to recognize the radical reality of conversion. God has to break through to people, and he has to touch the hidden corners of their heart by his spirit. It's a spiritual battle, and it's a changing of the alliance and the allegiance of the heart and of personal identity at the most fundamental level. You can't do that. We can't do that. So pray that God would lead you to those people whom he's calling. Pray that you would rely less upon your logic and your, and your own conclusions um, about people. Pray that you would be more sensitive to the leading of God's Spirit. Um, like Paul, like our Lord Christ, God has sent us, his church, into the world, out among your neighbors, out among your co-workers, out among your family members, out among your friends. In, in, in the prayer of Acts, uh, 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 sorry, of, of what God said to Paul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Maybe you're here today and you've uh, been tracking thus far, um, trying to track, um, but you're at a place in your life where actually you're not that concerned about the fate of others. Um, you're more worried about your own fate, or maybe you're not even worried about your own fate. You're just worried about how you're going to make it through today. Um, maybe the afterlife doesn't really register on your radar. Maybe you're really struggling with uh, self-loathing. Maybe you can't stand yourself because you've made some really bad decisions, um, even some horrible decisions. In your life, maybe you've traveled so far down a path of addiction, of lying, of greed, uh, of addiction to power, to prestige, to sex, to all these things that, that enslave us that you've sort of given up on yourself. Um, maybe you can't forgive yourself uh, for what you've done and the harm you've done to other people, even people that were uh, closest to you in your life. Um, if you're in that position today, 
pay attention to the story. Look at Manasseh. If God forgave Manasseh, a man who gave his own son to the fire, a man who shed the blood of so many innocent people, God stands ready and willing to forgive you. So maybe you've never prayed to God in your life. Pray to him this morning. I was looking through the bulletin. There are some wonderful prayers to help guide you in this. Look to Christ. Look to the Son of God, the suffering Savior, the undeniable demonstration of God's love for you, of God's willingness and desire to forgive you. Look to the Son, God's undeniable demonstration that he will give you power to change, that resurrection life that that raised Christ from the dead can also be yours if you trust in Christ. This story is here to show us that God's arm is not shortened. His power to save is not limited. Uh, His willingness is not curtailed. God wants to show each and every one of us the beauty and the power of his goodness, of his grace, of his mercy. Like we read before, according to 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires that all people, that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So when you look out at the world, when you look out at people you know, when you look out at people and you think there's no hope for them, I want you to think of Manasseh. I want you to think of the story. I want you to think about what God did in Manasseh's life. And I want you to realize that none, nobody, no one is too far gone. And like I said, if you're here this morning and you can't forgive yourself and you're really struggling with self-loathing and self-hate and all of these, all of the, all of the weight of your past, this story is here to say, and God in Christ says to you that you are not too far gone for God to save. Trust in Christ. Place your hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this story. We thank you um, for what a powerful uh, reminder it is that you are a God that saves, that salvation belongs to you and no one else. Lord, um, I pray that you would forgive us because we, uh, we really struggle, Lord. We are full of unbelief and we struggle to really believe uh, that just like you did with Manasseh, just like you did with Paul, a people that also uh, killed um, Christians, uh, Lord, you uh, can, in the, in the blink of, a, of an eye, in, an, in one instant, radically change someone and touch them in ways that we cannot understand. So, Heavenly Father, make this church, make, um, make it a beacon of light. Um, I pray that you would lead this church and its people by your spirit. I pray that you would give them renewed optimism, renewed zeal and love for this community and for all of the people around, him, around them. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to look to our own conversion, the way that you worked in our lives, and, and to just understand that we were in darkness, but in Christ you have called us into your marvelous light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.